This is David Aoud of Compliance Standards LLC, and you are listening to an episode of the podcast called Deep Dive into the IT Asset Disposition Sector and Electronic Recycling. So we are approaching the end of summer. In fact, today is the 30th of August, 2019. And I hope that everybody had a great summer break and bracing for a productive fall and beyond into 2020. Uh, the following is an unscripted conversation with Neil Peters Michaud, the uh, CEO of Wisconsin-based Cascade Asset Management, a company involved in IT asset disposition. Uh, Neil has been in this business for a couple of decades. I can tell you, based on our own research, uh, Cascade has had really high uh, service quality review from its customers and I know very well that Neil has a great understanding of his customers being very close to them uh, probing them uh, yearly uh, pr- producing research it's really my pleasure to have his views on what are the opportunities and challenges in his sector and uh, what does he see going forward well thank you very much for the time it's long overdue on the, on the other hand, this is a good timing because there's a lot of things ha- lot happening in, in, in our industry that uh, makes it even more exciting, I, I suspect. Uh, well, let, let's start with, uh, with an introduction of uh, Cascade Asset Management and what the company does. And uh, going back a little bit on, uh, you know, on sort of its history as well as what it is doing today. Uh, yeah, so Cascade Asset Management started in 1999, so we're just over 20 years old. Uh, we've always been exclusively in the business of IT asset disposition. Um, our headquarters are in Madison, Wisconsin. We've always operated there, but kept growing out of different facilities. And right now we have another facility in Indianapolis. So we primarily serve the upper Midwest or the, the, the Midwest um, and focus on on-site um, services, so on-site data destruction, asset disposition activities, um, whether it's being decommissioning um, both data center equipment or desktop equipment, doing on-site data crushing, drive shredding. And then the other, the next component is that secure chain of custody. So we actually have our own fleet and staff that do our hauling of the equipment to our facilities. And then both processing facilities have refurbishment and demanufacturing capabilities, as well as shredding of media. Mm-hmm. And when you say you do the uh, the logistics yourself, uh, you mean your um, you have your own fleet, uh, your own staff, um, and therefore you really don't uh, necessarily uh, use uh, third party transporters, uh, freight uh, folks in general. In general, that's correct. Uh, the vast majority of our equipment is collected from the Midwest. Uh, I was just pulling some numbers where um, in uh, in the last 12 months, uh, we did over 2,200 pickups, uh, and about 90% of them were in the 12 Midwestern states. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, we do some pickups, and we primarily are focusing on the 12 Midwestern states, but that being said, there may be uh, companies who have headquarters in the Midwest and locations elsewhere, and we do provide pickup services across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, some like, organizations have requested that full secure chain of custody where it's our background check staff and our vehicles um, handling the equipment across the country to bring to our facilities. And that also allows us to leverage some of our on-site data destruction services mm-hmm. so we don't have to transport um, data-bearing assets long distances. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, now there's been a lot of talks uh, about uh, the declining cost of freight lately. Uh, I, I know you own uh, your own uh, your own fleet. Uh, have you uh, giving it some thoughts uh, on uh, you know sort of the the difference between owning and and, and contracting transportation, or or do you find it uh, much more valuable to be in control of your uh, uh, you know the logistics part, which probably uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is a substantial share of the overall cost of ITAD. Yes, I, I, overall, we're very happy that we own the infrastructure uh, and the logistics side of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is the accessibility and the control over the quality of the services that we can deliver. So if we have our field technician staff who can um, both transport the equipment and provide on-site services, um, we're able to deploy individuals that have those skills uh, without relying on someone who may not have this as a regular business. Yeah. They may not be anything more than a, a moving company. Um, and sometimes it's been difficult to work with those organizations to even identify what types of assets need to be tagged, inventoried, and how they're packaged. So that gives in, giving us a lot of control over that whole logistics chain has allowed us to provide a better quality of service to our clients. Um, as far as a cost perspective, um, we've actually kept our freight costs to our clients, um, the price that we charge fairly consistent over time. Uh, we've set up a, a freight zone mapping. Uh, so within four hour radius of, of both of our facilities, which in fact actually covers, um, we're pulling some numbers, uh, the number of people that it covers is, yeah, five, uh, well, there's there's over 7,000 organizations that have 500 or more employees just in the Midwest. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, range that we can cover and support within that, those those radius, uh, radii of our two facilities. Uh, so um, we, we have these freight zones set up, so we know, depending on the distance from our facility, what we'll charge. Uh, we can do milk run pickups so we can collect from multiple customers in, in each run and still charge them what the rate is for that zone so we can share the cost among our customers. Mm-hmm. And that's been really an advantage for them and also service them quicker. Yeah. Um, and so when prices went up for others uh, with fuel and in the past years, we didn't pass those costs on to our clients. Um, we were able to control those costs because um, uh, we're actually managing most of, of the fuel and the freight costs. Yeah. Uh, Neil, can you give us a sense of how big your company is without obviously disclosing anything that's confidential that you could share in terms of uh, perhaps employee size, uh, perhaps other metrics that you would use to uh, uh, assess the the size of your of the organization. Yeah, um, Cascade currently has eighty employees. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last twelve months, we processed over two hundred and eighty thousand individual assets that were inventoried. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, a significant amount of material that comes through that's just processed in bulk. Um, and also in the last 12 months, we refurbished and either resold or donated over 105,000 different assets. So those are getting uh, generating some income for our clients. Um, we have about 330 unique clients. Uh, so we like to not to have a huge range of clients. We really focus on a deep relationship with companies that have repeat business and are continually purchasing and then uh, disposing of IT assets. Yes, absolutely. Any um, description? description of your product strategy um, you know I've, I've uh, started to cover the market back in already in 2003 
And um, I think the bulk of the the primary interests of the industry back then, the the supply side, your your you know your your peers essentially, has always been uh, centered around uh, you know mobile devices. That is essentially laptops in the, in the PC world. Uh, and uh, more more recently, there's been a lot more growing interest on um, data center. Um, I mean, it's not a recent interest, but it's definitely something that. Uh, has gathered a lot more attention from uh, various peers in your in your industry. Uh, what's your what's your thoughts, your position on on uh, your product strategy uh, in terms of the uh, you know your go to market? Yeah, for the the products that we're capable of handling and that we really target, it still continues to be the desk side uh, devices are a significant portion. Mm -hmm. Laptops, even desktops, um, we're still uh, seeing on the retirement side from our customer base. Uh, for the desk side units, about a 50-50 split in different desktop devices versus laptops. Um, but it's been the the highest growth area is definitely in the data center equipment and the mobility side. And I believe you know they're both growing at the same rate because one needs to support the other. Uh, and um, we still are dealing you know with that mid market company um, that is maintaining data centers in their environment for their and their um, you know really focused on their mission critical uh, information. And then they use third-party cloud services uh, potentially for uh, you know for shared applications or disaster mm -hmm. recovery yeah. so we do still a lot of data center cleanouts either at customer owned data centers or co-located centers uh, and provide some support for uh, retiring those devices and then refurbishing and reselling them when you talk about itad you typically do not include um, the ultra mobile devices that is the smartphones in particular because it's obviously from your perspective or or even from the perspective of the broad market it's a completely different domain controlled by different players handled by different uh, uh, channels uh, the AT&T of the world uh, does is that a market that escapes uh, the traditional iPad or the, the core iPad companies like yours well, for us, it's a significantly growing share of uh, the value that we're generating from uh, equipment that we're reselling. Uh, so um, we, it's difficult to get that equipment from the enterprises that are disposing of it because they may be more used to working through carrier programs, mm -hmm. uh, but more likely we are still finding a lot of people that are just storing and stockpiling these devices. Uh, so our biggest competition is, is the storage closet uh, for a lot of uh, the ultra mobile devices and smartphones. Uh, when we're we're we want to make sure people are aware that we can take them in any condition, uh, because our business is not only here to um, to to reset and reformat the drives and get them to NIST mm -hmm. purge standards for data security, but we do repairs. So we'll replace batteries, we replace broken screens on devices. And something that someone may be throwing out an iPhone 6 that uh, success that doesn't have any value to them because it's a cracked screen will invest $75 of parts and labor and then sell that device for $300 and, and generate some more value for, for all parties. You know, one of the segments of the ITAT space that I've the, the pleasure dealing with are the venture folks, venture capital guys. Uh, you know, they tend to come and go, but the interest has always been there even during the, really the downtime the downturn of the post-2008. Uh, one of the very first questions that typically these guys are ask is really uh, understanding the personalities that are involved in, in managing a, an, an ITAD company or any company where they plan to invest, obviously. 
would you mind sharing some information on who's driving uh, you know uh, your company I mean obviously you are the CEO uh, can you talk about the, the, the company's management in general and and really I think one of the questions that I, I like to ask per, it's, it's mostly a personal question really what drives you what drove you to the sector uh, oh let's say about 20 years ago yeah well I just have to start with we wouldn't be where we are without so many you know talented dedicated leaders that are at Cascade so just to talk about some of our managers um, our director of operations uh, TJ Barrelman has been with us for over 15 years he's been involved in a lot of different aspects of the business and has actually recognized quite a bit on the security side mm -hmm. so he's been very active with NAID participating in their technical committee working on SSD standards uh, he's worked on data center side, um, working with uh, industry groups like AFCON and others, uh, providing some good, uh, you know, learning as well as, as, well as providing uh, feedback uh, from the data security side related to NIST standards, how to apply them to ITAD, and has really been a market leader there. So he's brought that information back to help guide um, both our, our operations and security programs. So we're very proud of security. Uh, and our general manager at our Indy facility, he's got a background, uh, James Ellison, he's got a background running security operations and emergency preparedness at a healthcare facility. Uh, we target and work a lot with healthcare facilities. So his background, knowing those security operations on the inside, and his also um, was a combat veteran too. So he's seen every all craziness that we're going through too. Um, we have a quality manager who runs a lot of our quality insurance programs, um, Karen Detail Jenks. She is uh, very active in the eStewards program. Uh, so she's essentially rewriting the standard for eStewards right now and working a lot with Jim Puckett and others uh, to help um, look at how we can apply business reality uh, and, and the uh, intent of what the, the uh, eStewards program wants to promote into a workable standard that can be effective for the industry and the customer needs. Um, and then we just have, I think the mantra is you always want to hire people that are smarter than you. And we have a lot of people that are, are handling the IT equipment on the refurbishing side that know this data center and um, uh, data center equipment and mobility much better than I ever did over since we started. And, and that helps. Yeah. Um, it looks like uh, the team has been there for a long time. And, and that certainly plays a big role in solidifying your strategy and your position in general. Yeah, you know, we were just asked this question, I was on a call before, um, asking about turnover because it was looking at how to administer some employee benefits programs. And really for the last three years, our turnover has been between 10 to 12% uh, for company-wide. And I think, um, you know, from an industry where there's a lot of people that might go through in the production environment and, you know, with the way that the employment uh, climate as it is, I'm really proud of that. Mm -hmm. Provides a lot of consistency. Uh, from a leadership as well as um, you know our uh, you know building up that industry knowledge with it throughout our operations. In in terms of um, the industry uh, on on a demand side, um, you know all the data that we've gathered uh, so far uh, have indicated that the primary really source of the the profit source the profit pool comes largely from organizations that are heavily focused on compliance that you know essentially companies that are in a in the financial sector in the healthcare sector uh, verticals that really a have the money b apart from the money they they are required to do uh, all sorts of things to stay 
compliant with regulations and laws, etc. Uh, can you confirm that that's the case? Uh, obviously, this is not limited to these two sectors, uh, but in general, the profit pool tends to come from banks, financial organizations, uh, the ones that uh, that I seem to be exposed a lot more than, let's say, the retailers, for instance, even though we know that the retailers are trying to make progress there. If you could confirm that hey. that thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the two largest sectors for us that we service are healthcare, and then we'll we'll lump financial and insurance and banking all together uh, as the second group. Um, we call them regulated industries, regulated primarily from data security perspective, and so they're really driven to uh, a solution that can protect their reputation and ensure they maintain compliance. Um, again, I was doing some numbers too. It's the, the other thing that that sec those sectors fit well with a company like Cascade that is much more regional and we're not a global ITAD company is that healthcare and banking for the most part are very regional too. Yes. Um, so hospitals are going to be spanning a metro area, states, or maybe a couple states. So we have a lot of large healthcare organizations that they themselves have 12 to 20,000 employees and they're just focused in a particular state, but they may have dozens of hospitals and hundreds of clinics. So our solution of having the secure chain of custody to pick up from all these diverse and distributed locations, but in a defined geographic footprint works well, and we can maintain their need to have control over those assets and their data until they get finally processed. So the regional strategy actually works well targeting these two sectors, mm -hmm. um, so it's been good for us. Has there been any evolution in, in uh, the, the mentality of users? And I, I say that, let me just give you the context of it, and, and maybe we can go from there. When I started tracking the sector in 2003, it was within the context of green IT. I don't know if you remember that time, but it's yeah. been a long time. Uh, you know, I think green IT was at that point uh, driven by a, uh, an increase, a substantial increase in cost because of the uh, increase in the barrel of oil that sort of forced everyone to look into, uh, you, know, re you know, making reductions in, uh, in, in their cost and, and therefore look at every function within the organization, including end of life. Uh, one of the biggest things that uh, folks were talking about back then was the environmental footprint uh, the role of the corporate social resp responsibility, uh, and so on and so forth. Ha has has there been an evolution there? I, I sense there has been. Uh, I sense that, that the environmental aspect has been uh, put a little bit, um, you know, in, on the background. It's still there, but it's it's not as big as uh, you know both sort of the data compliance and and cost containment. But I I'd, I'd let I'd like to hear from you what. Uh, what you think has happened over the past, uh, let's say, decade, really? Yeah, you know, I was looking back at just my notes, and it was in 2002 when BAN released the video Exporting Harm, which was the, the dumping of e-waste in China. Mm -hmm. um, but it really didn't hit the popular press until 2008, 2009, when National Geographic and then 60 Minutes um, had uh, covered the issue as well. So um, that's when we started to hear from people at that time. So it's been 10 years um, where it's been more in the forefront of the global issue of e-waste dumping, as well as recognizing this is probably a resource that we shouldn't be throwing away. Mm -hmm. uh, and 2008, 2009 is definitely the time when a lot of the state's um, programs came online for banning electronics from the landfill. Uh, and it just made things a little bit more out there that people recognize these issues. 
Um, what I'm seeing now is that, or you know, actually, it's been more than ten years where we've done an annual survey of our clients and asking them what are some of the most important criteria they use when choosing an ITAD provider, and security's been number one consistently. Uh, but the environment has been number two consistently since we've started that survey 10 years ago. Interesting. Uh, so that's interesting to me. Um, I just see now people are applying the work that we're doing from uh, reuse and recycling of e-waste and how they use that for reporting in their sustainability programs. So people are starting to focus more on zero waste issues uh, and circular economy. And they are using some of our information to provide inputs into their sustainability reporting uh, because they may want to claim a zero waste or um, a you know looking at lower lower environmental impacts in their reporting. So we're providing data to them to help demonstrate that the electronics disposition program contributes to their overall sustainability goals. Um, but they're just starting to introduce that right now. The situation really hasn't changed as much. I mean, if you look at uh, the top concerns, where does, for example, cost containment uh, sit? And, and I know this is, uh, you know, not necessarily a, a black or white type of answer, uh, because each company differently has diff definitely has different, uh, you know, strategies, different positions, uh, different philosophies on how to handle end of life. Some maybe a lot less concerned about cost others maybe a lot more concerned about cost mm -hmm. is cost a uh, something that has changed over time in terms of interest or or uh, do we have really the same picture as we've had 10 years ago about an industry where you know where the drivers the, the, the inhibitors are happen to be the same uh, it seems like that's also been fairly consistent. So we ask, you know, cost containment and cost of, of asset disposition is the third most important criteria. And that often comes with the expectation that they have certain minimum requirements and standards that they need to meet for security and the environment in order to then look at companies that can provide services and then they'll evaluate them on cost. Yeah. So I think that's pretty typical. Um, uh, have certain certifications, certain programs to protect security in the environment and then do it at the best value that you can. Um, what's surprising to me though is that there is a significant amount of cost containment that can come from the reselling of reusable or refurbishable assets. Mm -hmm. And um, we are reducing or in fact flipping uh, the cost equation for most many of our clients when we can have a really thoughtful approach to the life cycle of these assets and then generate some income from reselling the assets. They take better care of them, they don't mm -hmm. let them sit around too long, uh, they allow us to wipe the hard drives rather than uh, destroy them. And um, still, the value that's generated from the resale of the assets tends to be the least important consideration to our clients. And we really want to boost that up a lot because by focusing on how we can work together to resell and generate value from these assets, um, it's going to reduce their overall cost of their programs. Do you guys have uh, you know, focused on added value services? H has there been anything new? that would convince your customers or, or folks in the ITAD on a, on, a, on a demand side to actually spend more money, more of their budget, uh, on, on services that may not be so tangible or not physical, if that makes sense. 
Well, I can give you an example because there was a client that actually did a case study with us um, that was that just switched to using Cascade a couple of years ago. And this is a case study that they presented at a conference. It's Erie Insurance. And one of the things that they presented in the value add, I think, that Cascade could offer them is that we were very transparent with one another about what they're putting into their whole IT asset management program as far as in uh, looking at what their refresh rates are what the actual initial acquisition price of their equipment was, um, how the, um, the the age of the equipment when it's being retired, as well as any condition issues. We can use that information and we add on additional information about what the residual value is, how much work we needed to do to repair, and we can feed that back into them to make better decisions when they're purchasing new equipment. They can really do a, a good total cost of ownership analysis. Mm. And that's something that we want to do. We want to share as much. We have a lot of data. And I think everybody in the ITED industry generates a lot of data on what happens once those assets leave an enterprise. And how can we get that information back to people so that when they make a decision about refresh rates and investment in maintenance and then turnover of their devices, that they do get as much value as they can on from the disposal side and also reduce the cost through disposal. Uh, and that's where we really want to take it as a value-added service. Uh, and in that case study, they said that as when we came in, the return on investment and the and the uh, improvement in, in their returns was more than 200%. Uh, so it was a significant value add back just because of transparency and partnership of information. And in terms of the folks that you deal with within these enterprises, uh, has there been any evolution there as well? Um, I do recall that uh, in several of, our, uh, of my analysis, we've uh, basically uh, identified up to seven stakeholders. That <laughs> is from the... Uh, you know, from the procurement folks to the compliance folks and legal to, uh, you know, to the facilities, etc., which, which really makes sense, but also justify the, the complexity of this, uh, of this sector uh, that, uh, you know, that seemingly appears to be simple for a lot of people. Oh, what, mm -hmm. is, what is this idea of getting rid of an asset? It's a very simple one, but it really is not uh, because of all the, the, legal, the legal, practical financial requirements that uh, that impact the, the operation it, it, it at some point up to seven functions are involved in uh, in itad um, and, and that creates uh, in essence that creates a lot of difficulties for companies like yours in terms of going to market because it's very difficult sometimes to find the right audience or the right decision makers and certainly uh, the guy who ends up signing the check uh, what's what's your thoughts and feelings about that? I mean, has there been an improvement? Have companies improved their understanding of ITAD, or are we still pretty much in an in in a space where I used to call it an orphaned function, where there's a lot of parents <laughs> but not not enough uh, attention uh, is being put on on, uh, on 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 the ITAD function or end of life function. Yeah, I've, I have seen improvement over the last 10 years of the discipline of an IT asset manager and actually having a position of an IT asset manager or department uh, where there are multiple people working on either software, hardware, and, um, and then playing support roles. Uh, if we can find that, that is absolutely the entry point that we want to have the conversation with because people do get it. They recognize all the different uh, impacts of the decisions um, from the life cycle of equipment, from compliance to 
to um, IT um, functions, um, and then facilities, how it ends up on the dock and gets out of there. So we prefer that. Um, we still, but I would say most of the time we're going to be dealing with the people that are the ones who buy the IT hardware. They're then tasked to figure out what to do with the equipment that they're replacing. And so it's going to either be the IT um, service managers um, or procurement, uh, which is really still very much focused just on what is the cost to do this and not as much on what is the value that we can add to help out the enterprise. Uh, so uh, we do try and work with um, an IT asset management group if possible, uh, then the folks that are deploying the IT hardware because they would much rather um, purchase and install and support new um, technology in their enterprise uh, rather than deal with the old equipment they're replacing. So we will try to make their lives easier. Uh, and then there's definitely been an, also an increase in the um, you know, chief security officers and privacy officers and those compliance folks. So getting them involved and making sure they recognize that this is a source of risk, um, how they're disposing of their IT assets, um, that is important for us to get them involved too. And they seem to be more receptive too. Yeah, but but the typical uh, interlocutor, the, the typical person that you deal with or the profile um, is either uh, IT or procurement. Is that correct? I mean, these are your typical contact points within the organization yeah when we're reaching out to people that's probably who we're going to find uh, i think if someone's already done their homework from an enterprise and then they're reaching out to an itad provider they probably already have an asset management program because they know what to look for i i would imagine that some of the uh, areas that have been helping educate the the customer uh, are the uh, certifications that exist out there uh, what's your thoughts on where the certification world is today i know it's uh, it had a, a rocky start there's been a lot of feuds within each and amongst them i would love to hear your thoughts on where they stand today are they bringing real value um, and are they helping essentially the the, the demand side uh, the way they really are trying to help the supply side are they helping both sides to make sense on the best practice if that makes sense um, I think it's definitely on measure much better for the industry overall that we have these standards. Um, it provides an education um, point to, to clients. It uh, it helps to have them start to ask some questions. Um, but it's, you know, the people who we're dealing with at enterprises do not have an expertise in environmental management systems or um, even data security. So they need to rely, they are relying on these standards as trying to provide that due diligence uh, for them uh, without, um, uh, but they're not asking that next question. <laughs> yeah. So we don't yeah. want people to only rely on the standards. We want people to, to to make sure that the companies they deal with have financial stability, that, you know, go view their facility and make sure that they're operating well and they're not stockpiling equipment somewhere because yeah. uh, the standard can only provide so much assurance to people. So actually raise an interesting point, uh, a little bit about the competitive landscape, about the supply side, which I'm very curious to hear some of your views there. One of the developments we've seen um, not too long ago is really this uh, this world of uh, acquisition, uh, not, not M&A, because uh, there, has, there haven't been any mergers. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, but I haven't seen two companies getting together. I, by the way, I would love to see that. Are we in a market where it's a zero-sum game, where if you want to grow organically, you, you have to take away from somebody else? Or is the market is still, uh, you know, a cake that's growing? Um, uh, to me, it's probably a little bit of both. 
but I, I'd love to hear your, your thought. I mean, are we in, in, a, in a hyper-competitive space or are we in a place where there is still opportunity for even new entrants? Yeah, I think that it's still a growing marketplace and it's an opportunity for someone to be very innovative to come in to provide a new way of, of, of handling equipment through a new business model, new technology for processing materials. And it's from, you know, I, I, on the recycling scrap side, how do we deal with rare earth materials or how do we deal with plastics? Um, so there's quite a problem with the international restrictions on the trade of plastics right now that can create a new business opportunity there up to an ITAD service with, um, you know, looking at innovative ways of, of doing logistics and on-site services um, and deploying solutions um, um, more through technology rather than through people. Uh, so I think that there's new ways that we can always do the sector. And thankfully, you know, being in this business for 20 years, um, it hasn't been boring because it has changed quite a bit over time with the different types of products that we're providing and the needs of clients. So it's kept it interesting at least too. Um, but I think that there's a lot out there. I still see, again, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things that are still stockpiled that are wasted value, um, things that are not being turned rapidly, uh, that uh, even the current uh, um, solutions could enhance the, you know, the, reduce the waste that's out there, you know, get some more value out of this equipment um, and also reduce the risk by processing materials faster. Uh, so there's a lot of things that are not going into the highest value solution that all of us can get um, can can benefit from that are in the industry doing it the right way. Uh, and I think that's one of the things we want to do, educate people out there that there are good options for processing equipment. And it's not just exporting them overseas, unprocessed or um, stockpiling them because you don't know who the new what, what solutions are. out. There. You know, on, on, a, on a basic level, the market getting to a point where uh, it would be difficult for someone to enter this market, uh, a new entrance, you know, and perhaps what it would require, if I understand your response earlier, a substantial uh, different business model to be able to make it. You really have to enter the space with a different mindset uh, if you really want to compete because, well, it's a very competitive market. Well, compared to 20 years ago, it is absolutely a much more competitive market. Um, you know, I part of the orientation of new staff is to talk about what the industry was like when we started the business. And one of the things that's very different, it was a completely fragmented and um, immature market at that time. Um, there was, uh, you know, actually, it was the it was the case that it was more of DEC, uh, and, you know, before Compaq and, and uh, HP, you know, DEC had a good enterprise uh, um, asset disposal program, uh, as well as um, IBM. I mean, they were doing the enterprise work and there wasn't many people in, in between. Um, you know, Retrobox, Redemtech, and Tecra, they're just coming out around the same time we were. So there wasn't much in the space. And I would say there's a lot more mature players out there that if someone really wants to come out of the blue to do uh, a new solution, uh, they need to come with a compelling new business model. That being said, um, in this past year, we have still worked with very sophisticated, large enterprises that are Fortune 500 enterprises that had not necessarily had a very sophisticated iPad program in the least. Um, they were leaving a lot of money on the table. They were working with unsophisticated iPad processors that um, were also putting them at risk. And really, it was kind of a no-brainer when we 
showed them our model and and the amount of value that we could return in the first year is just you know they're they didn't expect it so i know there's still more people out there like that and um and that's something that we you know it's it's good for us to um, take this waste out of the economy and see what we can do to improve um, itad programs for clients then i guess the the next question is um is about the uh, the error decision to exit the market. Uh, in my mind, it really has exposed the weakness of the supply side in many in many ways. Um, what's your thought uh, on uh, on the error decision? One of the questions, perhaps, is you know, did it make sense for a company like this to buy so many companies that are kind of photocopy of each other um, when it what it would have made a better sense to just buy one of them and and grow organically and improve it obviously this is those are different strategies uh, but it, it sort of sort of raises the question of uh, you know multiple acquisition of similar types of uh, companies uh, in a market like itad well I think it's an integration st strategy is difficult in any industry um, and I think uh, the in many ways, there's a lot of the the, um, the mentality of the waste industry in this industry, which is probably the most dynamic industry out there, mm -hmm. where there's so many uh, mergers and acquisitions, sales, and then people um, being acquired and then leaving and starting up their own company again, which has happened in our space as well. Um, it's just difficult to get the personalities, the vision together, because it's an immature industry. So there isn't, everyone isn't coalescing around, this is the best strategy to go out and support clients so some when people are coming together in these acquisitions and in this roll-up the personalities that have different visions of how to be successful are, are colliding and I think that creates some challenges and and then you also have customers who are used to doing some things one way out in um, one part of the country to one previous uh, provider and then they have to change the way that they see reports change the way that they're ordering service change even the business model so that's difficult and, and you have people that that don't like that change and might look elsewhere so i think it's integration is just so difficult you know we've looked at that and it's just <laughs> i think i've learned that it's so difficult to do that um uh it's it's not necessarily worth it setting aside the inter the challenge of integration was the wisdom of acquiring so many assets or so many companies that are and, and you know these companies i mean you've known yeah. integra and redemptic very well they're typically typically the value propositions are the same the methods are the same uh, i would guess that many of the customers are the same um, so if you are a larger company playing in that space, what is, you know, beyond, of course, beyond the financial considerations, because I did hear that the prices were very reasonable uh, mm -hmm. for them to basically not be concerned about acquiring them. Uh, was there anything above and beyond uh, what we think is hap has happened for Aero to have spent money on acquiring all these various companies? Was it an effort to empty space and, and try to reposition itself or reposition itself as a key player? Or was there something else from your understanding anyway? I'm not sure too much be in the... I can only speak to what seems obvious, which is that um, back in the time when these acquisitions started a little bit more than 10 years ago, I feel like in the industry, and that's before the recession, so really you know, 15 years ago, there was an interest where the 
industry was maturing and there was a race at that time for a national footprint. Um, there are a lot of companies that started opening up other locations. And one of the best ways that a player could grow fast was just to acquire these geographic locations and to get this geographic footprint. Mm -hmm. So getting some of these facilities in different parts of the country, they created a fabric of a lot of different locations that could um, both provide that footprint and then they acquired a lot of great capital equipment and processing equipment and Tekra had you know millions of dollars of really high-end processing equipment at that time um, to get a vertical integration strategy of the ITAD business and electronics recycling you know shred shredding and separation so I think it was a good fast way to do what they thought at the time was a quick um, there, there was a need to roll this out, this solution out quickly, because whoever could capture that national footprint first would get the market share and the lion's share uh, of the the potential opportunities. Uh, then the Great Recession came up, and that threw everything you know up in arms um, and and changed uh, kind of the equation for people. But it makes sense to me at that time because we were thinking about a national footprint. We actually mm -hmm. ourselves did the organic national footprint in 2008, 2009, uh, where we had eight facilities across the country um, because there was an interest to provide that national footprint. Uh, but it's not necessarily, you know, we retracted eventually back to the Midwest. It wasn't the best solution for um, us at that time. And um, the need, the demand wasn't out there, despite what people thought there was, um, that people really wanted to have a, a national footprint, but um, they just had one or two items in the West Coast and the rest of the equipment's in the Midwest. So um, I think it makes sense when they, you know, had to use that as a strategy to grow fast by acquiring other companies. And then uh, just an expectation, they could create some synergies uh, by reducing some of that duplication of costs. Um, but maybe that was a little bit more tougher than, than they thought. One of the uh, things that really was perhaps striking, uh, but not so... Uh surprising was the fact that they, the company was not making money. Uh, many folks talked about profitability <laughs> in the space. Uh, I, I would argue that the fact that you guys and all your peers are still standing and doing, do, and, and doing well uh, means that there is profitability, that the, the, the space is not necessarily a, you know, an industry that, that's losing money, that it, losing money is just a, a function of how you manage the business. Uh, could, could you confirm that this is a profitable space in general? Um, I would say that it can be a profitable business and Cascade is making it a profitable business right now, but it can be very challenging. Um, sure. The margins are tough. It's a high touch business. Um, and if uh, some things change in the marketplace, it can be, um, you know, very difficult. Um, again, it, and the recession hit the economy across the board, obviously. But I remember um, talking with Jerry Powell at Resource Recycling just to ask, like, you know, a good indicator of how the Great Recession impacted the industry is to know how many people participated in industry conferences. And and he said that, you know, they would do an industry survey um, uh, each year. And uh, two years, uh, you know, in 2010, there were 60% less companies that were around compared to pre-2008 that were answering the survey. Um, that many companies went out of business. So a lot of people had, it, they're on, uh, you know, real thin margins to make this work. Um, it's a concern to me, absolutely, that Arrow is losing that much money. Um, I think people need to recognize that, um, you know, that 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 maybe this isn't, uh, you know, 
we're not all getting hugely rich off of this business um, in, in some ways. Uh, you know, we're a lot of people are in this to do the right thing for our clients. It's a growth industry. We're profitable, um, but we're not a billion dollar company. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, Arrow and uh, and other uh, you know integrators that are looking to make this a significant part of their business, others have tried and they haven't really been able to make that into that that peer that can compete with some of the other parts of their business. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see again that's probably why in the investment communities been a bit quiet lately because uh, they haven't necessarily seen the returns that they expected um, but uh, i think you know when it can be um, i think some of the things that arrow and and other companies doing is they want to use itad as a way to get other parts of the higher profit business yes. uh, and and that's not a bad idea too because the IT asset disposition part of the business can really tie in the whole life cycle to clients, uh, and um, you can own that life cycle, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, yes, but only if you have the right management philosophy. In this business, to one of the biggest uh, value to a company that's in ITAD is its people. You know that the tasks can be extremely complex. The scale of uh, an operation can be such that it, it would require you know, a skill set that that may not be easy to find. Uh, but I think to me the, the more important thing is really the people. I do remember uh, a number of companies competing for, uh, or, or, or competing for a, a big contract in New York. A and uh, the, the, the junior folks in the procurement, uh, when they reached out to me on, you know, sort of to help out who, to, you know, to sift through the process, uh, you know, asked me, uh, how can we convince our management that this company, tiny little company, is better than the other company, much bigger company, because we lack the personalities, we lack their self-organization, we lack their management, their, uh, their you know, the the, the 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 relationship aspect of it uh, makes it that sometimes it's not as corporate as uh, one would think. It's not as big strategy. You really have to pay attention to the people who manage the company and the people that are pacing the customers that are doing the work day in and day out. So I, I do agree with you. I mean, if you are a big corporation and, you know, ITAD could be strategically positioned to enhance your core business, but that's, that's not a, enough of an argument, right? I mean, you really have to have what it takes to go beyond that. Uh, and and I, I'm not sure I've seen that with, uh, with Aero specifically. Um, and with others as well. I mean, obviously, it's not arrows that's in the same on the, that's in the, in that on that boat. I mean, there's plenty of other ones that, uh, you know, try to build a value proposition around their, you know, around ITAD to enhance core. Unfortunately, they're not giving enough, uh, per perhaps resources, perhaps independence to the management, and certainly perhaps both. And that's. Uh, that's problematic, in my opinion. Is there a an empty a vacuum left by Aero leaving, uh, from your perspective, or, or you know, going back to what I said earlier, perhaps a series zero sum game, perhaps things are clearer. Perhaps most of the customers of Aero um, may have had two or three other suppliers or, or vendors, uh, but uh, do you see a vacuum left uh, as a as a result of Aero leaving the, the space? Well, and David, I'd like to answer too, just on, I think what you said related to um, who's going to replace Arrow and, you know, what are people expecting, kind of build off the idea of 
providing a good quality service is something that people really value. Um, you know, the example, kind of where I've looked at, we have had companies who were using Arrow or splitting us with Arrow come to use us autumn, right away, you know, a few weeks after this announcement. So we're already um, um, seeing the, the need to fill that vacuum because they have ongoing service requirements. And we also have uh, been taking some clients from Arrow over the past couple of years. So, you know, we've seen some of the attrition of people leaving Arrow, and I think that they've realized uh, that big business wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Um, you know, they thought that they'd get a lot of resources, um, you know, these great programs, great rebate returns and costs but because of the scale. But they come to us and they realize, I mean, we have all the resources, we have all the programs, we can do the repair, we can do the, the um, on-site, you know, the, the, the data destruction activities, we can do the portal for uh, inventory reporting and giving them asset information. Um, but we do it at a much higher quality. And um, we have a consistency of our staff that goes on site that does the pickups. We had someone say, it's great. We never knew who that other provider was going to send from week to week. It was They were always contracting out for the service. So we get the consistency. Someone who knows their location is very professional. Um, and yeah, I don't doubt that um, what you're saying on the importance of a long-term relationship that clients have with a provider, any kind of provider, is, is really paramount to getting through these difficult situations that are going to come up in a relationship sometimes um, whether it's the client has a huge refresh project they forgot to tell you about and they need you to act on it um, for dealing with the disposal in the next couple of months which sometimes happens and saying yep we'll do it we're ready we'll, we'll solve that problem um, we had a very respected analyst uh, come through cascade probably 10 or 12 years ago francis o'brien and mm -hmm. you know i asked her okay, you've seen Cascade, she visited our facility, she's been to other ITAD providers, you know, what makes us different? She said, look, Neil, you've got all the same resources, you've got all the capabilities, You're beautiful. their building's beautiful, you've got the procedures, programs in place. You know what makes you guys different is that you guys are nice. And um, you actually, you know, when you work with clients, you, you treat them well and you treat them with respect. And so um, that's something that we keep pushing through our company culture that we want to make sure that we treat our clients as real people that we're partners with. We want to solve problems with them. And yeah, that's made all the difference um, to have those relationships to make things work. Yep. So yep. one particular comment from a, uh, a big company that uh, was dealing with a large ITAD, one of those very large uh, conglomerates really, uh, where ITAD is uh, a tiny subset of its uh, of its business, almost non-existent, really. Uh, but they put a lot of energy, a lot of resources. It was not Aero; it was a different company, which I will not name. Uh, still pretty active. They told me that uh, organizing a meeting with them or getting in a meeting with them is like organizing a wedding. Is that yeah. hard and hard, that difficult? <laughs> the, being able to prepare for these talks and try, you know, getting the the dynamics and the relationship going has been a, a lot more uh, problematic for them because of the way um, you know these companies structure their sales organizations, their commission structures are, the way the, the, the target goals, you know how do you incorporate ITAD and uh, do you pay commission to the ITAD guy or do, pay, do you pay commission to somebody who sells the core product or the core services and that's uh, you know that these are uh, topics that certainly uh, frustrate, uh, you know the 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 customers out there, and, and that's why, 
it's very likely that we're going in towards an environment where we're, we're going to be back to 2003, 4, 5, and 6, where the core ITAD companies are going to be back to the, uh, the, the primacy of this business. Now, because we've seen that disappear, I mean, with Arrow, you know, taking all these companies with their competitors trying to follow suit, uh, we've seen sort of the core business disappear with you guys staying there, uh, mm -hmm. a few of you, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a good number of you out there. Uh, I think, isn't it possible to see sort of the reemergence of that core business at the forefront of, uh, of ITAD at the moment, on the other hand, as, as, good, as good as it sounds, I think the outlook looks also pretty interesting to talk about. We're moving into a, a, a different future in terms of industry profile, in terms of product consumption, in terms of product definition and form factors. That, that is going to obviously uh, force you to make changes in terms of how you, you run your business and, and so on and so forth. But are, are, are we headed towards an era where, where the core players are going to be back? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. And um, maybe we've all uh, learned a lot. We've grown quite a bit in 15 years. Um, us and other, you know, ITAD players where we understand that we are not just the last thing people think about after they buy a new computer, um, which, you know, has been the case a lot of times. We want to be a partner to help people use their IT assets a lot longer. And sometimes it's actually, you know, we've done some projects where we are refurbishing and redeploying equipment back into that same customer environment. So we may see that equipment two to three times uh, before it leaves into another market that's external to our, our client environment. And that's been a great thing to see. Um, how, to, how can we be used to maximize the value of those assets for multiple lives, that whole circular economy set, um, uh, framework? And so, yeah, there's a lot of value that we can add and um, much more than what we knew and what the technology allowed us to do 10, 15 years ago. Now, now in terms of the, uh, you know, the market dynamics, uh, there's always been the case that uh, you know, the secondary market has always big, uh, been important for, for your industry. Uh, it's been important for products as, as is get, getting into the secondary market. It's been important for the, the, the components that you harvest from devices that feed into the, the warranty market, for instance. It's been important on, on the commodity, in the commodity market with uh, the commodities that you extract and, and after you turn the device into uh, all sorts of uh, you know, commodities. Uh, has that picture changed? I think it's more of an expectation too of or the recognition of risk, um, and the 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 flip side is a demand for more transparency, uh, and I, I you're, that's kind of a theme that we're using in our own strategic plan, building more and providing more transparency to clients that they can use to elevate their programs, uh, whether it's knowing, you know, providing um, a direct link into our inventory management system to see where the assets are in the process so that we can actually work together to make sure that we're getting the most value out of that equipment, processing it quickly. Um, uh, and, you know, sometimes we'll have questions where a device is held up in testing because of password protection or low jack uh, um, holds or especially mobile device management. How do we work together getting that information to a client, releasing that uh, hold so that we can resell it, get more value for people. And then they can use our data also to help inform decisions on future disposition. As well as 
I want to know where my stuff goes from a recycling standpoint. Tell me that it's not going overseas into a dump. I want to see proof that it's being processed properly. And I think that's kind of an expectation of the next level that um, in general, people are asking for more transparency in the world. And then our industry can provide that transparency to reduce and decouple the risk a bit uh, and get more value out of the assets. Really, the changes are not really necessarily uh, focused on form factor, uh, product definition, and even product consumption, but a lot more on the process of managing yeah. ITAD uh, from transparency to efficiency, to bringing efficiencies to uh, whatever, comply, you know, improving compliance, etc. So it's really a process-centric uh, outlook much more than a product outlook. Yes. Um, and we've always defined our business as primarily a supply chain business more than a product business. So our goal is to move equipment through the supply chain, through the reverse logistics supply chain, as efficiently and securely as possible and do a little bit of value-added work in between. So that value-added work could be the refurbishment, the testing, data sanitization, demanufacturing and processing to end markets. So we always want to make sure that those processes are good and that they're adaptable to a wide variety of products that come through because we're going to take anything from anybody that's an IT asset. Um, and so we're not just focused on mobile devices. Uh, we need to hand handle data center cabinets all the way down to these um, smartphones and flash me at LEC. And so um, creating an adaptable, well-managed um, a uh, system that can track all the assets efficiently through the process is really going to be our key to continuing success. Um, and, you know, a good example right now, be partly because you know, we are increasing more capacity, especially on the refurbishing area. And so we're readjusting the way our workstations are set to create a better density of how much we can process in the same space um, so that we can, you know, our throughput is growing without needing to expand our, our space and our footprint. Um, but we can deploy the same tools uh, just at a higher capacity. Um, so, yeah, it's we've been able to leverage a lot of the same systems over time, depending and then adapt it to the different products. Um, but just using tools for doing repair, a lot of new tools and expertise from our staff on how to do testing and evaluation of products, um, that's been necessary to stay on the cutting edge. You, you did mention earlier, Neil, that... Um some of the work that you do is really tying the end of life with the procurement guys when it's time for them to acquire new assets. Has there been any evolution there? And I say that because, um, you know, in the past, uh, ITAD is sort of the tail end of IT life cycle. Uh, as much as we used to talk about a closed loop life cycle, uh, that really hasn't materialized uh you know, 100% uh, across industry, segments, verticals, etc. Some companies are obviously on top of uh, the closed-loop life cycle. Uh, others are most, are, I would argue, are probably not. When a device reaches its, uh, its end, uh, okay, it goes through ITAD. We try to keep an eye on it, but that's pretty much it. Uh, has there been a tie-up between ITAD and brand-new product strategy within within companies? Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, we have some examples of companies that have recognized they don't necessarily need to buy new uh, equipment. They can buy refurbished equipment in order to fulfill an enterprise need. There might be a lower demand application. Um, and so that's been kind of interesting. Um, people are actually considering 
tapping into this refurbished market uh, for their procurement decisions for new IT equipment. And so that's been great. We've actually, it, it's interesting to be working with some companies uh, as their supplier of product and, and not just receiving the old product and, and as they're disposing of it. And so, you know, it's not appropriate for every situation. Um, you know, for Cascade, what we do ourselves is that uh, we will take computer equipment um, for our own needs and we'll take refurbished equipment, replace the storage media. Uh, so put in a new hard drive, new SSD, so that, uh, you know, we have the, the mechanical parts that might break. We're going to replace those, but the rest of the unit is in perfect shape. So um, we're trying to introduce that mentality of how can we stretch the company's dollars by... Um, having the appropriate technology used in, in the appropriate applications to save the company money and still get the performance that they're expecting. Now, now looking into uh, perhaps the next for five years, I am convinced that in addition to ensuring that day-to-day -day operations are working perfectly fine, uh, you're probably consumed by what's going to happen in tomorrow. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would love if you could share with uh, our listeners uh, What's in the minds of Neil as you look at uh, this space? Yeah, and you know we do strategic planning. We're in the midst of a strategic plan right now for implementing it. Um, I would say that we have accelerated our execution of the plan, partly because of um, Arrow, uh, Arrow's announcement. It's brought us more business, but we've actually been uh, executing on it better than we expected. So, you know, we're getting we've had multiple years of significant double-digit growth. So that's been great. Um, but within that plan, uh, we've really focused on honing on those skills of management systems uh, and our inventory management system, too, to provide kind of that next level of transparency and tracking for our clients uh, so that they have access to the data on what's the disposition activity at any time, integrating that with their asset management programs so that, again, they make better decisions. It's always been my kind of long-term vision in this industry that we're going to be really successful when we know today where we're going to get three to four years from now. Mm -hmm. So we're partners with our clients. They're making these new decisions on, on what they're choosing to purchase. And that allows us to provide some service mm -hmm. um, throughout that, their management. That is starting to come out through the device as a service application. I think that companies like Cascade can be a really good partner to those using that subscription model um, and make sure that there's a device that's always working. And we provide that detail to get the most value out of those assets when they no longer provide us the value in the existing infrastructure. So I think devices as a service is an interesting um, approach. Again, it's more of a business model than it is a product. And uh, we can provide some solutions that really enable uh, that service to kind of take off uh, as far as uh, providing useful um, devices uh, through the life cycle and then getting them out and into a better application uh, when they're, uh, they're done from their initial use. Uh, Neil, thank you very much. Um, really appreciated the time you, you shared. I look at the timing here. It's been over uh, one hour. Uh, so very generous. And uh, I think that uh, concludes the formal uh, discussion. <laughs>